what church is supposed to be able to decide for me what the scriptures say? I. Yeah. Yeah. You know, except I wasn't saying, I was saying sola scriptura, but not sola ecclesia, but essentially what I was saying was, oh, solo mio, right? Like, it's (laughs) only me, right? I'm the magisterium. And, uh, you know, what I say here goes, yeah. this is what God has revealed to me. And that's essentially, well, as you're going to say, this, this is essentially what's going on in the Reformation. Hello, and welcome to another Footloose and Fancy Free episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swain, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. He was a Baptist pastor. I was just a D-list Christian rock and roll guy opening for bands you never heard of. Uh, But either way, we both read and prayed and studied and were confronted with some questions along the way, and both of us ended up Catholic. And maybe you are in that process yourself. Maybe you've gone through that process yourself. Maybe you think that we're a bunch of weirdos. Either way, we are glad that you're here, and we invite you to visit us at chnetwork.org if you want to find out more about what the Coming Home Network is all about. Or you can subscribe to this channel or check us out in our online community, community community.chnetwork.org. And I know some of our listeners are wondering, why are there so many episodes about authority? Uh, And what's on the other side, Ken? I don't know, but we're on episode 50 overall and part six of our series on authority yeah why are there so many episodes well there there are going to be some more yes where the uh the series that we're doing which we titled scripture tradition and magisterium we're on port part six of that and um anyone who wants to catch up all i can say is you know when it comes to a series can't recap every week can't recap well can't even begin to recap so just going to need to go back and watch all of the episodes, but um, we're in part six today. Last week, I will recap a bit, um, tying it together with last week. Last week, we focused on the idea, we've looked at scripture, we've looked at tradition, we've looked at the relationship between scripture and tradition, and last week, we began to focus on the idea of an authoritative teaching church and how much sense it makes that this is the kind of church that our Lord would have established Given how the church is described uh, in the New Testament as Christ's own body, as the bride of Christ, given the extraordinary promises that Jesus made regarding his church in the New Testament, that he would build his church on a rock, that he would be with his church and would never leave his church, ascending to the right hand of the Father, sitting down on the throne of power and basically saying, I send you my spirit and I'll be with you always. Go Whatever you world. bind on earth will be bound in he- yeah. heaven, all this stuff. I mean, it seems though he's not just speaking, you know, rhetorically or like, you know, it'd be a good idea. No, no. If you did these things. Yeah. In fact, there's more because given the, the need for the church to be one church and for uh, individual Christians to have certainty as to what they are to believe, it makes sense. It simply makes sense to think that Jesus would have established a church with the ability by the Holy Spirit to preserve the apostolic teaching and and to to transmit it without error, to transmit it intact. And it also makes sense, we noted last week near the end, 
it also makes sense to think that this authority would be exercised through the ordained successors to the apostles, through those chosen to shepherd the church after the apostles had left this world, the bishops working together and led by the Holy Spirit. Um, And of course, the reverse, it doesn't make sense to think that this authority would be exercised by Matt Swaim, you know, studying his Bible and praying and trying to figure out what it, what the Bible teaches and then standing up and, you know, and forming around himself a church of 10,000. And it doesn't make sense that Ken Hensley would do it or any individual Christian. It doesn't make sense that 10,000 people would show up. No, that doesn't make sense either. But what does make sense is that this authoritative, that the authority of this authoritative church would be exercised through the magisterium, and that's what we're beginning to look at today. The okay. magisterium, terrifying word. As a matter of fact, uh, if you've ever read the uh, Golden Compass books, like that's the evil regime, you know, throughout the books. That's the magisterium. It's this evil, scary word. There's not. I don't know of any mm-hmm. other Christian mm-hmm. tradition that has a, or, or I mean, they may have scary it, but they, they wouldn't call it a magisterium. That sounds like this big group of scary guys in yeah. robes yeah. in yeah. Rome who think for you. Yeah, well, that's true in a little bit, <laughs> in, in a certain way. But yeah, I mean, the big, the scary, I'm not sure about all that. Okay, before we begin attempting to make the biblical and historical case for the Catholic Church's teaching and belief in an authoritative church, an authoritative magisterium, let's ask a few basic clarifying questions, Matt. First of all, what does the word magisterium mean? And to answer that question, I'm looking at a book titled Magisterium, Teaching Authority in the Catholic Church, written by the, the, um, the late Father Francis Sullivan, who in his time was professor of ecclesiology at the Gregorian in Rome. He explains the meaning of the term magisterium like this. The English word that corresponds to the Latin magister is master, not only in the specific sense of schoolmaster or teacher, but in the broad spectrum of senses in which a person can be a master. For instance, a master of a ship, master of servants or slaves, master of an art or trade. The Latin word magister always had a connotation of authority, coming as it did from the root magis, which means more, as contrasted with minister from minus, which means less. I would never have made that connection unless I had read the notes for today's show that magis and minus, or minus rather, uh, would be contrasted with one another. So I guess the magisterium teaches broadly. The minister Mm -hmm. just kind of teaches, you know, the people in front of him. He's a servant of that. Yeah, yeah. The little guy's the servant of the big picture. Yeah, and what it emphasizes is the servanthood of the minister. It's true. I mean, the, the word, you know, from the root, which means less. To be a minister is to be less, not to be more. Okay, second, though, what does the word magisterium refer to when we are using it in the context of the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church's teaching? It's used in primarily two ways. First, the word magisterium can be used to refer to, just generally, to the teaching authority that Christ has given to his church. We use it in this sense when we speak of the church, quote, uh, exercising its magisterium, quote, unquote, for instance. We're saying, you know, the church is exercising its teaching authority. But the word is also used to refer to those in particular who exercise this teaching authority, and that would be the bishops in union with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. We speak of the magisterium in this sense when we say something like, the magisterium defined the Trinity. Okay, so this may, this may be a subtle difference, but I 
but I wanted to at least mention it. The word magisterium in a Catholic context is used to refer to the teachers, uh, to the church's authority to teach, and then also to those who possess that authority. And for somebody who is maybe not familiar with this word and how it all functions, uh, you know, there might be some questions that come up, and I had questions like this myself on the way mm-hmm. towards Catholicism. It would be like, okay, so how many people are in the magisterium? Like, you know, how does one mm-hmm. get elected to this office of magisterium? It's that's not exactly how it functions because again we're talking about the authority and we're talking about the exercising of that authority and using the same word so hopefully the next couple sections of this episode will kind of explain what we mean by that because it's not like well um Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. you serve on the magisterium for five years your term is up and now we appoint someone else to the magisterium to serve in your place and that's not how it works at all yeah and actually when it comes down to very practical questions I can imagine that we could ask 10 or 20 questions. Um, we're not even going to get to those. But, but I do want to talk about the basic nature of it. Because, you know, there's a sense in which the whole church is magisterium, in, in the sense that the whole church teaches. You know, the, the priests teach, there are teachers that teach, there are all kinds of people who teach. But when we refer to magisterium, we're talking about a specific group that has been given teaching authority um, from Christ through the apostles. But Anyway, what is the nature of this authority, the authority that we refer to as the magisterium? Um, Okay, to put a bit of meat on the bones of the basic definition that we've given, I want to return to a passage from the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation from Vatican II, Dei Verbum. It's a passage that you and I concluded with last week. And first, I'll simply read it. But the task of authentically interpreting the Word of God whether written or handed on, in other words, um, who has the task of pronouncing authoritatively on the church, that's what it's talking about. The task of authentically or authoritatively interpreting the Word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This teaching office is not above the Word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It draws from this one deposit of faith, that is scripture and tradition, everything which it presents for belief as divinely revealed. Okay, we're going to make a couple of points here. First, an important clarification is needed. When Vatican II, that is when Dei Verbum says here that, and I quote again, the task of authentically interpreting the Word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. First, what it isn't saying, it isn't saying that the bishops are to take the place of all theologians, all Bible scholars, all historians, you know, that somehow the bishops are to do all of the biblical exegesis, and they're to do all the teaching in the church, and everyone else just sits and keeps silent. No. From, from New Testament times, Matt, as you and I know, there have always been scholars, there have always been teachers in the church. St. Paul refers to teachers throughout the New Testament. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas had no problem in his time using the term magisterium to refer to university professors and scholars. Now, it's, it, it's come over time within the Catholic context to refer in a special way to those who possess teaching authority within the church, again, the bishops in union with the Bishop of Rome. But what Dei Verbum is saying here 
is that when it comes to making formal pronouncement, that's the key. It's not saying that the bishops do all the interpreting. When it comes to making formal pronouncement on the church's doctrine, what Dei Verbum is saying, the living teaching office of the church exercises final authority. Now, Ken, you and I may say something that is completely true. You and I, in the context of this show on the journey, may come up with a new word for something the church has always believed, and it cleverly and creatively expresses a five-word concept in like three syllables, Mm -hmm. and maybe even catches on and gets into popular use. We still are not the people who have the authority to make that like a technical term of the church, right? It's just, it's right. just something that kind of right. caught on and was kind of interesting right. and popular. You and I, we're just dudes. That's not in the realm of yeah. our authority. Yeah, and the thing I wanted to emphasize is, is simply that it's not like the bishops have the job of doing biblical exegesis. In fact, from what I understand, uh, only two or three or four passages of the Bible have ever had an authoritative interpretation pronounced ab- about them. So that, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is simply that the magisterium has the, the authority to finally pronounce on the teaching of Scripture and tradition. What is the doctrine that we are to hold? And they speak authoritatively. Okay, second point I want to make on this is it's extremely important for us to emphasize that the church's magisterium is not conceived as being above the Word of God, but as being its servant. Again, quoting from Dei Verbum, This teaching office is not above the Word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay, notice, uh, Matt, how that this sounds an awful lot. If you just read the words and kind of catch the mindset here, the tenor of these words, sounds an awful lot like what St. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy when he's looking forward to his possible departure from this life, and he's wanting to ensure that his teaching will continue. And he writes to Timothy, this is in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and 2, to say, follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others it sounds almost like, you know, just like the passage from Dei Verbum, it sounds the same. And the reason I raise this as important and very important is is this. It is very common, more than very common, extremely common to hear Protestant apologists make the charge that Catholicism puts the church above the Word of God. Um, I can't tell you how, how often in debates I have heard it said, we, that is, we Protestants, we believe in sola scriptura. You Catholics believe, ultimately, in sola ecclesia, sola the church. Because when you say that the Catholic magisterium has exclusive authority to define the teaching of scripture and the teaching of tradition, you're essentially saying that the ultimate authority is not the word of God. The ultimate authority is the church, hence sola ecclesia. And so we'll fill this out a bit, but let me say this as succinctly as I can say it. The church does not set itself above the word of God. What the church sets itself above are all individual interpretations of the word of God. What the church is setting the magisterium above, setting itself above in authority, are all individualistic interpretations of the word of God. Now, just to 
kind of bring it back around a little bit. I I kind of laugh when you're going through this because this is an argument I would have made. You know, what church is supposed to be able to decide for me what the scriptures say? I. Yeah. Yeah. You know, except I wasn't saying, I was saying sola scriptura, but not sola ecclesia, but essentially what I was saying was, oh, solo mio, right? Like, it's <laughs> only me, right? I'm yeah. the magisterium. And, uh, you know, what I say here goes, yeah. this is what God has revealed to me. And that's essentially, well, as you're going to say, this this is essentially what's going on in the Reformation. Well, you know, Martin Luther said, we've quoted it before, each Christian, to be sure, is his own pope and church. And, and I know Martin Luther had a way of, of speaking off the cuff and saying things in, in, a, in overly strong fashion. But he said, each Christian, to be sure, has his own, I mean, is his own pope and church, and what he meant was, because there is no authoritative church on earth to tell us what the true doctrines of the faith are, it ends up being up to each Christian to study, to pray, and to decide. And what the church is saying here is no, it's not up to each Christian to study and pray and decide. It's not up to Martin Luther to, to decide. It's not up to John Calvin. It's not up to Melanchthon or Zwingli or Bucer or Bullinger or Matt Swaim heaven forbid, or Ken Hensley, heaven forbid, forbid, triple forbid. It, it is not up to any individual Christian to decide. It's up to those ordained to succeed the apostles in their ministry of ruling and teaching in the church. The successors to the apostles, which we are going to begin to see next week and the weeks beyond, are the bishops. Exactly. And it, just in Martin Luther's defense, he didn't think that was the door that he was opening. When he was saying no. each no, believer no. is his own pope and council when it comes to these matters of faith, uh, if you were to complete the thought for him, what he means is, and and you will all see, if you read the word of God for yourself, that it says exactly what I'm telling you it says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, which is how yeah. a lot of this uh, ends up functioning with, you know, people who come up with their own private interpretations. They believe yeah. that they're hailing sola scriptura, and anybody who just yeah. reads the Bible for themselves will obviously come to the conclusions they have, and that's why we have... And no. John Calvin had the same point of view. I've so quoted before where John Calvin says, this is kind of a paraphrase because I'm not sure I remember the, the wording, but where he says, um, the, the teaching of the fathers and of councils are of authority, but only insofar as they accord with the rule of the word. And, and as soon as you ask, well, John, how do you know what the rule of the word is? Then he's going to have to say, well, I've laid it out in my institutes of the Christian religion. You know, if you read what I've written, you will see that I have accurately, ref that I accurate, my teaching accurately, accurately yeah, reflects the rule of the word. I got tangled with Seventh-day Adventist uh, this week, yeah. and uh, they, there is no official pronouncement in the scriptures that says, uh, heretofore, from the Council of Jerusalem 2, we've decided yeah. that all Christians will now worship on Sundays. It's not in there. Right. So the Seventh-day Adventist can go back and say, well, yeah, wouldn't change in the Bible. Um, every Christian who worships on Sunday is in violation of the scriptural mandate to worship on Saturday. Yeah. Well, what are you supposed to say, right? That's their interpretation. Yeah, so, so when it comes to, you're exactly right, when it comes to the Protestant worldview, essentially, I guess it's easiest to say it like this, the position is that there there does not exist on earth an authoritative teach teaching church. And therefore, by implication, we're left with 
well, I, I guess it's up to me to study real hard. And if I agree with other people who have studied real hard, like for instance, Baptist theologians, then I'll join myself with the Baptists. And if I agree with the Presbyterian and reform that they've more accurately done it, I join with them or the Lutherans or the Nazarenes. And make no mistake, every single one of those traditions is full of smart and holy people. Yeah. But ultimately, it's me deciding that. Okay. Uh, Francis Sullivan, again, from the book Magisterium, he puts it like this. First of all, it is clear that where revealed religion is concerned, the ultimate authority is God, the revealer. He's writing this as a Catholic theologian. Okay, the ultimate authority is God, the revealer, and the absolute truth of his word. The role of any human mediator, whether prophet, apostle, bishop, or theologian, is to help others to know what God has said and what his word means in the here and now. Or to, to paraphrase Dei Verbum then, what Dei Verbum is saying is that the work of the magisterium is not above the word of God. The work of the magisterium is to teach only what has been handed on to it from the apostles. Its work is to listen devoutly to what was handed on to it by the apostles, to guard it scrupulously, like Paul tells Timothy, to guard it by the Holy Spirit, to faithfully explain it with the help of the Holy Spirit, and to pass it on to others ordained to take their place. The magisterium isn't above the Word of God. The magisterium is the servant of the Word of God. If it's above anything, it's above all merely human individualistic interpretations. And just to tack on to that a little bit, um, because sure. the magisterium is the servant of the Word of God, it's not above the Word of God. There's certain, well, not just certain things, there's a ton of things the magisterium just does not have the authority to do. Um, so, for instance, uh, let's say down the road, Pope Boniface the 35th, you know, decides, mm -hmm. you know, you hear about packing the Supreme Court, decides to pack the Trinity, and it's like, you know, we're adding four persons to the Trinity in this in this dogma. We're going to make can't. it a, a Trinity of seven. He has no authority to do that. No, can't. Uh, John Paul II said as much when people asked him about redefining the priesthood. He said, this is not— I, I have no authority to do that. I have that. no authority to do this. Because— uh, even the Bishop of Rome, we're going to see, uh, e even the Bishop of Rome, his job is to receive what has been given to him and to, to listen to it devoutly, to scrupulously you know, hold fast to it, to teach it, guard it by the Holy Spirit, and to pass it on. And okay. in the case of the priesthood, it was passed on by Christ himself, and John Paul is like, what, I'm not... I'm not sure. He, out, he outranks me. Yeah, I can't. I can't. He outranks me. Okay, now, I, I want to insert quickly, we could make a third point here, um, in talking about the nature of the magisterium, and we could say that under certain very prescribed conditions, the church views the magisterium as exercising an infallible authority, an infallible teaching authority. But we're going to come back to that, so I, I'll just set it there for now, all right? Okay, on, on to the biblical and historical case. And I want to start today sort of beginning to move along in this biblical historical case by looking at the pattern of authority that we see among the Old Testament people of God. So going back to the Old Testament, when we read the Old Testament, Matt, do we find the people of Israel practicing sola scriptura? Um, do we see them holding to the idea that the written Torah, the written you know, Torah and prophets and writings is all that is needed and that each member of the community of Israel has the right to read that, those written documents has a copy of them in their for, home, right? Yeah, and determine for themselves what they believe it to be teaching. Is this what we see in the Old Testament? The question kind of answers itself. It answers itself because when we look at the pattern, and I use that, I, I use that word purposely. There's a pattern of authority. 
when we look at that pattern of authority, what we find in the Old Testament is, I jump ahead, exactly the pattern that we find in the Catholic Church. We see scripture, we see tradition, and we see magisterium, and we'll walk through these quickly. First, scripture is viewed as an ins- as inspired and authoritative, and there's no doubt about that. In Psalm 19, we read, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And we could read a million passages from the Old Testament that support this You could this mil- idea. read a million from Psalm 19 or 119, right? Yeah, <laughs> just, on, just from Psalm 119. Just 119 yeah. is like the longest yeah. chapter in the Bible, yeah. and it's basically this over and over again. It's just praise the Word of God. You, you know, your Word is like, a you know, honey, you know, yes. Okay, but there's no doubt about this. God's people in the Old Testament viewed Scripture as inspired and authoritative. But secondly... There's also no doubt that the oral teaching of the prophets, in other words, just like we saw when we were looking at the New Testament, the apostles' oral teaching, the oral teaching of the prophets was also received as the authoritative word of God, and not only to those who directly heard them speaking. For sure, those who directly heard Isaiah speak, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Habakkuk knew that, but even to those who did not directly hear them speak, what they had taught their words were conceived as authoritative. And I give one little example of that from Second Chronicles chapter 29. Um, here we have King Hezekiah restoring the temple worship after a time in which it had been neglected, in fact, a rather lengthy time. And in verse 25, we read this, He, that is Hezekiah, stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer, and of the prophet Nathan, for the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. And the thing that's interesting about this is that the commandments that are being referred to in this passage, the the commandments of David, the commandments of Gad, David's seer, the commandments of Nathan the prophet, these are commandments that Hezekiah is implementing authoritatively now hundreds of years after these men lived. Um, These commandments are not recorded anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. They're not written down anywhere, and yet they are viewed by Hezekiah hundreds of years later as being commandments, he says, quote, from the Lord through these men. So you have here an example of a of tradition, if you will, where the oral teaching of David and Gad and Nathan was preserved and passed down and was known in the time of Hezekiah, and he's able to describe it as these as commandments from the Lord. Yeah, how would you like to uh, get a copy of uh, original manuscript of the book of Gad or the book of Nathan? Yeah, I would like Or, or, you know, all the prophets who are unnamed and killed by the sword under Ahab uh, and Jezebel. I mean, these people are obviously hearing from the Lord, and what they're saying from the Lord yeah. has actual real live binding authority, and we don't have a word from them. Right. Not the yeah. first written document from any of them. Yeah. Well, so, so here's an example, simply to say that when we look at the pattern of authority in the Old Testament, we find Scripture being authoritative. We also find, obviously, the oral teaching of the prophets being authoritative. But here, we even find it being authoritative to those who didn't hear it, to those hundreds of years later that know about it, but never heard it themselves. But then third, we also find in the Old Testament an authoritative magisterium. 
in some forms infallible, in other forms not infallible, but in all forms authoritative and binding on the people of God, a real authoritative magisterium. And we're going to look at a couple of examples of this. In Exodus 28, verse 30, we read about the high priest who had in his possession something called Urim and Thummim, by which he could evidently inquire of the Lord and he could make decisions from the Lord that were binding on the people. And I'll read a couple passages here. First of all, from Exodus 28, verse 30, in, in the breastpiece of judgment, that is of the high priest, you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart. When he goes in before the Lord, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. And then in Numbers chapter 27, verses 18 through 21, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand upon him. Cause him to stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. Here you have like a proto, you know, ordination ceremony. You lay your hand upon him, put him before the people, commission him. You shall invest him with some of your authority. Okay, this is Joshua. That all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey him. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim, Urim and Thummim, before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. Now, as you know, no one knows for sure what the Urim and Thummim even were. You know, people speculate they were two different two stones of different colors that he could pull out and throw on the ground and, and inquire of the Lord in that way. Um, but no one really knows. For all we know, Urim was... Um, a Hebrew concordance, and um, Thummim was a Hebrew lexicon, and uh, the high priest could pull them out and he could com compare notes and come to a decision, but, but we don't know what it is. What we do know, at least what I know, is I wish, I sure wish that when I was a pastor, I had a, a set of these, and even more when I was a father. I mean, you have a young child, so uh, you know the difficulties of trying to get to the truth on things. I, I, I remember often my daughter, my son, would come into the room crying, fighting with each other. And I'd say, what happened? What happened? And they'd give me just absolutely contradictory, <laughs> you know, versions, accounts of what happened. That's a time when a father would like to have Urim and Thummim. You know, I could take it out and just throw it on the ground and I could figure out whether it was Yeah, it would be it nice. Thing. It'd be nice to have those things. But Ken, at the end of the day, uh, whatever you decided in that moment in front of your kids was binding and authoritative. Yeah, it was binding authoritative, even though not infallible. That, no, not infallible, sure. yeah, but they still yeah. had to do what you said, right? Yeah. Unless it was completely contradictory with justice yeah. and right reason, you know, you you did what you could because you had been yeah. invested with authority, just like Joshua had been invested with authority by Eleazar. It didn't mean all his battlefield commandments yeah. were going to be infallible, but it did mean he did have the authority to give them. So. I'd still like to have Urim and Thummim. I would. It would really help. Go on eBay after this. So, so no one knows what they were. But the, but the point is, Matt, in some fashion, they allowed the high priest to inquire of the Lord and to receive answers that he could give the people of God. And these answers were binding on the people of God. So I'll put this under the category of infallible then, in some sense, if he was able to inquire of the Lord and receive an answer from the Lord. But beyond this, there are other forms of the magisterium in the Old Testament that, that I wouldn't say are infallible, that is the, the authoritative magisterium of the priests and the judges, they also functioned as authoritative teachers 
among the people of God. Listen to this passage from Deuteronomy 17. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns which is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place which the Lord your God will choose. And coming to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, you shall consult them and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place which the Lord will choose. You shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions which they give you, according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict which they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. Okay, so authoritative magisterium. And I would say this, it isn't crucial at this point that you and I try to decide uh, for sure which of these authorities were conceived as being infallible magisteria, which were um, not. I mean, were the decisions of priests and judges infallible? I, I think probably not. Were the commandments of David and Gad the seer infallible? Well, the passage does say that they came through the Lord as commandments, So, but, but it's not important that we nail that down right now. The point that is important is simply to say this. Their decisions were authoritative, and their decisions were binding on the people of God. There was no, in other words, sola scriptura. There was no, well, you know, Aaron, I'll study the passage myself, you know, or the judge or the, you know, the priest, the Levite at the time. I'll study the passage. I'll study the, the relevant cross-references. I will do, you know, cultural background study, and I'll decide for myself if I think your decision is the correct decision. Luckily, we wouldn't have to learn Hebrew in that case. No, that's right. So. There was no sole scripture. There was no pride of judgment. I mean, there was no private judgment. And I mean, I think imagine if there was. Imagine well, if there yeah, was. Yeah, imagine I come to you, or imagine I come to the Levitical priest, and I say, okay, I understand that according to this passage and such and such, you know, Le- Leviticus, that it, that I have to return the goat that I borrowed from Matt Swaim the other day, you know, and I have to, I, I have to pay him an extra 20% or whatnot. But Listen, Mr. Um, Sir, Mr. Levite, um, I don't think that you have really consulted the relevant cross-references in the Hebrew text. I don't think you've looked at the historical background. I don't think that you have really dug into the meaning, accurate meaning of the word, the Hebrew word return, which occurs in this passage in the Hiphel stem and therefore can also mean maybe return. Or you know, you can't imagine this. You can't. And while you're arguing, I just run command. back and take my goat. <laughs> yeah, you just run, you do an in run, just grab goats, the goat. This goat's my, my goat. So, so there's no solo scripture in the Old Testament. You know, there's no Ken Hensley coming to Levite and trying to argue the case from the lexicon or so the Hebrew stems or verb tenses or anything like, like that. You go to the Levite, you go to the judge, and what he tells you, you do. Okay. Not because so, they are absolutely divinely inspired and right about everything all the time. Right. But because they have the authority. Yeah, and this is where, you know, in the future we're going to get into the difference between discipline in the church and infallible teaching and all that. But right now, the, the important point as we kind of crawl along trying to make a case that is solid is that we see that the, the, the pattern of authority in the Old Testament is basically the same as the pattern of authority in the church. There is Scripture as authoritative. There's the oral teaching of the prophets as authoritative. And then there is an authoritative magisterium that comes in a number of forms in the Old Testament, sometimes functioning infallibly, sometimes not functioning infallibly. 
but always functioning. And so there's no doubt the Old Testament church is an authoritative church. It is an her- a her- hierarchical church. I think you should say the word because I apparently can't say it. Well, I it. mean, you're still... It's hierarchical. You, but this is, uh, this is just proof that, uh, you know, after years and years of a Catholic life, you know, in the practical ways, can you still bristle at the word hierarchy? You know, it's just, <laughs> you know, it's funny, though, because of how much resistance there is to us in our in our hearts to even having a, uh, the idea of hierarchy. I I find myself all the time, even to this present day, being like, oh, hierarchy, blah, blah, blah. What do those guys know? Hierarchy, well, it kind hierarchy. of almost doesn't matter, you know, mm-hmm. how good they are at administrative execution on various concepts um what matters is that this is the way christ set up the church now we're going to get into that because you know today we're just talking Mm -hmm. about the Mm -hmm. old testament but in the old testament it's clear that there were you know good and bad eggs all the way through good and bad executors of their office people who were you know talented you know, leading the people of Israel and people who are not so talented, but God never said, "You know what?" That's a very kind way to at say a, it. At a certain point, um, you guys are just each going to every Israelite's going to have to decide for themselves. You know, yeah. based on you know your account of the reading of the story of Noah as to what you think should be done, and then just act accordingly. Yeah. No, um, yeah. there was no such thing. Yeah, and I think about times where, like I said, you said it kindly. Those who who were not able so well to lead the people. I mean, there were kings that led the people straight to hell, you know, um, led the people down to where they were offering up their sons and their daughters in the fire to Moloch. And yet if you and I were alive during that time, you know, during the reign of King Manasseh, let's say, and if I had said to you, hey, Matt, you know, this place is so unbiblical now. Let's you and I go out into the desert. Um, I'll ordain you a Levite. You know, you you ordain me a Levite or a high priest. I'll, you know, you can be the high priest. We will do it right. We won't okay? call it Israel, we'll, you know. Yeah, we'll, call we'll get it, back to the Torah, and we will do it right. We'll call it the patriarchal we, church, right, because we're getting back yeah, to the roots. Yeah, right. you know what would have happened, though. The earth would have opened up beneath us, and we would have fallen into it like Korah and his, and his 250 or 240 rebellion. Because even That's though we didn't hold up our end of the covenant as a people at that point, God was still holding mm-hmm. up his end. Yes. So, and and the right thing, no matter how far they went into sin, the right thing would have been to pray, to teach, to hope for the renewal of the old covenant people of God. But the church was the church then, the covenant community of the Old Testament was hierarchical, hierarchical, and and it, it's not because I bristle at the word; it's actually because um, as I was growing up, I stuttered like a madman when I was in high school. I could not have done anything like I do teaching now because I couldn't get a sentence out without just massively stuttering. Anyway, the Lord has um, helped me with that. So now I just stumble you and, uh, hierarchical, hierarchical. You and Moses too. You know, there you have it. So, uh, or, well, I, like what, I like what Luther said about Moses when he was emphasizing justification by faith alone. He said, take that stuttering, stammering Moses and <laughs> send it back to Egypt. Um, <laughs> again, Luther had a colorful way of... <laughs> now, now, I know the objection that's probably raising uh, here among some people who have have even more Mm -hmm. trouble saying the word hierarchy than you and I do. Um, And they're probably thinking, well, Ken, this is the old covenant you're talking about. Everything you just said is Old Testament, old covenant, all that. And I just want to put people at ease. This is not the end of this topic. This is not the end of this scriptural analysis of this topic either. We are nowhere near done to talking about how this looks in the Bible. 
No, what we have seen here is simply that the pattern of authority in the Old Testament is scripture, tradition, oral teaching, and an authoritative magisterium that the church of the Old Covenant was hierarchical. When we come to the New Testament church, where we will pick up next week, we're going to see that this same basic pattern and structure prevails. Scripture is authoritative, the oral teaching of the apostles is authoritative, and then magisterium, the decisions made when the apostles and elders of the church meet in council. Again, we're thinking, you know, again, it's Acts 15 we're looking at. The decision that they come to is conceived as being the decision of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the letter, the decree that they sent out from that council, which took place around AD 49 or so, AD 48, 49, said it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see the New Testament church is also hierarchical. And people receive that letter from the council in Acts 15 with joy when they read it. Yeah. Not because they're like, oh, so well, these guys are, they seem smarter than us on this question. I think they figured it out. I like their idea. Let's go with that. No, no, it's because these are the guys with the authority to actually pronounce on the question. And they're happy to have that authority. Exactly. They're happy to not be left to themselves to figure it out. Okay. And here's the thing I want to conclude with. The pattern of, we saw in the Old Testament, Scripture, Tradition, Magisterium, the pattern we are going to see in the New Testament. And then thirdly, this is how the church continued to think of itself and continued to function after the apostolic age in the 2nd century, the 3rd, the 4th, the 5th, the 6th, the 7th, and on down through Catholic history. This is why we can read, for instance, the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch, some of the earliest post-apostolic writings that we have, writing really only a few decades after the apostles in the earliest part of the second century, 107 to 110, 117 maybe AD. And we can hear him saying things like this, let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude also be even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Pretty strong. Now, I don't know about you really in the Nazarene Church, but we didn't even have bishops in my in, in the Baptist um, churches. A lot we of churches bi- don't. Bishops. Um, and so he begins by saying, let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. And I would, I would have been looking around like... Um, but go through your phone book and find all the different denominations, and they're not even denominations. You know, we talk about the different denominations in the church today, and, you know, if I yeah. drive through my town, most of the churches that I look at are not affiliated with the denomination. With they're just yeah. buildings yeah. Um, where people meet to worship. And of course, they would say the church is not a building. Um, the church is just us. But by us, who do they even mean, right? Uh, and it's, uh, again, I'm grateful to have a magisterium. <laughs> I'm grateful for yeah. the teaching office of the church. I'm grateful for apostolic authority, which sees itself not as a, not above uh, all this stuff, mm-hmm. but as a servant to it. And I'm grateful that it's, you know, stayed intact for 2,000 years, even though, just like Israel, we've had some people who have not executed their office well. And so again, more to say. I'm being so generous. Much, yeah. I'm being yeah, generous with that. So, so much more to cover. And we're going to cover a lot of it next week uh, as we get into the New Testament. But in the meantime, uh, please do come visit us at chnetwork.org if you want to find out more about what the Coming Home Network does and is. And uh, if you want to subscribe to this channel, we 
appreciate that very much. But if you want to get into the real discussions and uh, the conversations to connect with Ken and I personally, the best place to go uh, is always community.chnetwork.org. That's where we have our online community made up uh, entirely. It's a social network just of nothing but people who are interested in these questions and perhaps uh, an active pursuit of truth on those questions. So come visit us. In the meantime, Ken Hensley, thanks so much. Have a wonderful day. You too.